Fathers, we continue to worship as we encounter this rather difficult and perplexing text. What we need is not just a new angle, not just more information, not just more data or more facts, but we need you. We need you to meet us where we are. We need you to illuminate this text. We need you to make it real to us where we are right now. Father, wherever we find ourselves, let us find ourselves in this story. Let us find ourselves in this passage. Let us find our salvation in you. Let us find meaning and embrace and welcome from the God who made the universe. What a tall order. We pray that you and you alone would be able to do that on our behalf. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm um, sort of the embodiment of most common male stereotypes. There's the male answer syndrome. I had, it's a new one to me, but I, once I read about it, I said, yes, I do that all the time. And this is one where men, if they don't know the exact answer to a question, instead of saying, I don't know, they marshal every bit of information in their heads that may relate somewhat to the subject and then form an answer. And so I do that quite a bit, and Katie has to ask me after I give an answer, is that really the answer, or are you just making something up? I also don't ask directions. I'll walk through Fred Myers, and even if I'm kind of just perplexed about where something might be, one of the workers can walk right by me, and I won't ask them where this thing is, because, you know, they're paid to know where things are. It takes a very uncommon uh, customer to be able to find everything on their own. So I don't ever ask for directions, certainly not while I'm driving. Now, there's one place I do ask directions, because though I've put together my share of IKEA furniture, and I'd like to say that I can put this stuff together just intuitively without directions, there's so many pieces, even to the most basic little piece of furniture. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but as you open it up and you lay everything out, there's always like two or three pieces of the Ikea furniture that just don't look like they could fit into this piece of furniture. It's like that, those three things can really go into this chest of drawers. They look so strange. They don't look like they have any purpose to this piece that we bought. What could they possibly be for? We've come to the most perplexing part of the book of 1 Peter. And one of the most perplexing parts of the whole New Testament, at first glance, it's the part that seems most out of place. There's three or four pieces in here to this passage that we are like, what does this go to? How could this possibly fit into what Peter is trying to say? Peter says that after his death, Jesus' death, he went and made proclamation to imprisoned spirits. And that these spirits were disobedient in the days of Noah. That the ark, and particularly the water, symbolizes baptism. And then finally, that baptism is in some way a pledge of a good conscience towards God. Strange-looking pieces, not obvious where they go. But when you're at Ikea, you've seen the assembled piece of furniture, and so you know they fit somewhere. You just have to figure it out. You have to look at the directions. Well, what's Peter been assembling? What has he been building for us that these pieces, those strange, somehow fit into? Well, this whole letter, and particularly the part that we're in right now, has been an encouragement to people who are likely to suffer unjust treatment, particularly because of them 
being known as Christians. And when they suffer, what Peter is telling them is that they're suffering in solidarity with Jesus. But not only that, that as they suffer with Jesus, Jesus' suffering actually accomplished something. That his death and resurrection accomplished victory over all unjust authorities and powers. They've been put on notice that their reign has come to an end. And when the world is unjust, when someone misuses power, when someone abuses someone who is weak, it's easy to think that it happens in a closed system. And it's easy to lose hope. And that those who are inflicting suffering have ultimate authority. But they don't. Peter tells us at the end of this passage that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He rules from the true seat of power in the cosmos. When it says he ascends to the right hand, that means that he is ever present everywhere and that that's the seat of power. So this is the bracket that these strange pieces fit into. That's the assembled piece of furniture that we've got to figure out where do these pieces go and how do they convey what Peter is trying to say. We need to remind ourselves as we get started that the Bible isn't a manual of life that just drops down out of the sky pre-written. It doesn't come to pass because there's some guy in a dusty old library and his hands just starts moving and God dictates to him what the scripture should say. It's not mechanical. It's not divine dictation, but it's organic. It's incarnational. In other words, God always speaks through his word into a specific context. And for reasons known only to him, he unveiled his truth and his plan of salvation, this story of the gospel, not in ancient Mandarin, not in ancient Navajo, but for some reason in the ancient Jewish context and then the Greco-Roman. And he utilizes that particular place, that setting, that context, the personalities both of the writer and the recipients of these letters. And so we we have to have some level of humility as we seek to kind of unpack what he's trying to say here because there's so many things that are very specific and particular to that time and setting that 2,000 years later are going to be difficult to piece together with 100% accuracy. Martin Luther, writing back in the 1500s, said of this passage, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still don't know what it means. That was Martin Luther, the great Lutheran reformer, this very bombastic personality saying with humility, I don't know what this means. And how many church schisms could have been prevented with a, a bit of interpretive humility like this? So does that mean that we can't know anything about this passage? That we can't be certain about any part of it? Not at all. It's not that the main point is so obscure and out of reach. It's just that the way that Peter constructs his argument out of pieces that are really highly stylized and highly specific and are familiar only to the ancient readers. He's writing a missionary letter. And in fact, all of the Bible is a missionary letter It's teaching people how to live in this new world that Jesus has inaugurated. And Peter is writing to a very specific place. He is writing a missionary letter of how they're to live out 
and how they're to engage in the story of Jesus in the stories that they find themselves part of. Now, one of these stories, one of these stories that would have been very familiar to his readers was the book of First Enoch. Now, Enoch was Noah's grandfather, if you remember from your Sunday school lessons on the book of Genesis. But the book probably wasn't written by Enoch, but was written as someone writing from his perspective. And the writer of Enoch looked at all of the problems of the world, the injustice, the suffering, the strong beating up on the weak, and he traced it back to the wicked spiritual beings that were written about by the writer of Genesis in Genesis 6. The writer of Genesis called them the sons of men, and in some way they were symbolic of the terrific evil that rose up in the time of Noah. And these spirits are what Enoch calls the watchers, are cursed to remain earthbound and imprisoned all the days of eternity. This is the story that Peter is now picking up on and is trying to make the gospel relevant to the stories that they already know. And he's trying to say something about Jesus' triumphant victory by pointing them back to this ancient Jewish legend. They were apparently very familiar with it. And he wants to describe the extent of God's power and his victory over all of these evil evil forces, beginning with those that embodied this terrific evil in the time of Noah in Genesis 6. Jesus is preaching to spirits imprisoned in the days of Noah. That's what Peter is talking about. He's referencing these particular spirits. And he's, very, he's saying in a very stylized way that Jesus, in his ascension, is announcing his power over all evil, particularly over that which was embodied in these spirits in the time of Noah. That when the earth was so bad and wicked that it only could be fixed with a flood. His ascension is a victory and a death blow to all evil everywhere. And that's the big idea of this passage, that Jesus is victorious over all evil, and in union with him, so are you. Now, I find it really cool that God appropriates a legend that these people believe that they would have known in order to get spiritual truth across, in order to get a larger point across. I find it so cool that he is always moving toward us, that he surrenders even to our language, to our idioms, to our need in order to show us the beauty and the majesty and the victory of Jesus himself. He's always moving into our world, inhabiting and redeeming our broken stories. And the Bible, as a missionary letter, is not about how you make your way towards him, but it's about how he has made his way to you. Now, what does that mean? We'll handle a little bit more of some of those pieces in a moment as we talk about baptism. But where does that leave us so far? What can we say about what this passage speaks to in our lives? Well, he says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 
And what Peter is saying to these readers, to his audience, and what he's saying to you today is if you're in Christ, that this is your story, that this is the framing way that you are to think about who you are, about your future, about your identity, about your meaning, about your purpose. This is your story. This is your daily hope. And particularly if your circumstances involve unjust suffering and persecution. This truth is what enables you to live in the way that we looked at last week, that Peter calls you to not repay evil with evil, not repay insult with insult, not fearing threats, not speaking maliciously when someone speaks maliciously about you. And how can you refrain from those things? How can we begin to unlock ourselves from that cycle of violence if we think that that's all there is, is this cycle of violence that continues unabated until the end of time? Our only hope as we hear these stories of just gruesome violence coming out of Iraq and Syria this week, of the systematic extermination of Christians and other minority groups, as we read the continued, seemingly unstoppable bloodshed in Gaza where children are collateral damage, as we read about poverty and inadequate health care as one of the things that speeds the spread of this horrific virus in Central Africa, it's hard to weigh in on something as grotesque and brutal as those things from the comfort and safety of home, of here. It seems easy for us to talk about hope, but really it's not. It's not at all. Because in places of prosperity, in places of security and comfort, Christianity is in utter decline. But all around the world, in places of danger, in places of hunger, places of poverty, Christianity is proliferating. It's exploding And Peter, after all, is not writing this letter from a comfy office chair to people who are wealthy and powerful, but he's writing from a place of danger to people in danger, to people in jeopardy. He's writing to a world like Gaza. He's writing to a world like Iraq and Syria. And he said there is reason for hope. Don't give up hope because you have the final chapter. You know the ending before it happens. Spoiler alert. There's a lot of bad things in this movie, but the ending, the ending is beautiful. Don't live your life now, here in the West, in safety, as if this chapter is the end. It's not. Don't read the headlines as if they're the end. They're not. On the global stage, you don't have to place your hope on a particular, particular leader or government initiative to balance the scales of justice. And on a personal stage, you don't have to return slander for slander, gossip, hurtful words. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to vindicate yourself because if you're a Christian, Jesus' story is your story. His vindication is your vindication. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. And that's your story. If you're a Christian, that's your story because that's your baptism. That's your baptismal story. That's what baptism connects connects you to. 
It's dying to life as it was and being made alive to a whole new reality. It's dying to life that leads further and further to death and utter decline and being born into a story where, pro- where life proliferates and grows more and more. And so he says in verse 21, this water symbolizes, that is the water that held up the ark, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter here is not attributing some magic, immediate power to the water of baptism. You just get wet and you're good. Everything's fine. We saw a baptism this morning, and it's a means of grace by which God works to bring his grace to Theodore. But we know that at some point, he's going to have to realize that he's a baptized person and either live unto that and live into that or deny it and walk away. It's not a magic pill. It's not magic water. This would contradict, of course, everything that the Bible says about salvation in that it comes from God. It's a work of God done unto you. But what does save you? It's not the water itself. It's that which the water points to, that it points to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's what saves you through baptism. The water of baptism saves those who are in him. This very water that threatened to kill Noah and his family was the very means of his deliverance because they were in the ark. Noah trusted God and stepped into the ark, and the water carried him to salvation. And what the Christian does is they step into Christ, and the waters of baptism carry them to salvation. What does this mean for how we think about baptism? How we think about our own baptism, if we have been baptized? Or how we think about baptism is if you're there considering, what would it be like to be a Christian? Can I call myself a Christian? What would it mean to come forward and be anointed with this water? Well, it means that it's less than magic water that saves you, but it's so much more than just a symbol. It's so much more than just a ceremony. It's not magic water, but it's a means of grace, and it's a powerful means of grace. When these people, when they thought of baptism, when these people that Peter is writing to stood to proclaim Jesus, mostly as adults in that context because the gospel was new. It was converting grown-up people. And when they stood to proclaim Jesus, to join his community through baptism, maybe it wasn't quite a death sentence, but it was something very close to it. They knew by having the waters put over them that they were aligning themselves with a hated persecuted, new, heretical religion. Those baptized were saying, Caesar is no longer Lord, and he's never been Lord. Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to live by that. It was quite seditious. They were also called cannibals because the rumor was that they drank the blood of a man and ate the body of a man. They were hated and ostracized. And baptism so connected them with this movement that it marked them out for persecution. Now, parents, wouldn't we think twice 
or maybe three times about bringing our children for baptism, if that was what it meant, if we were marking them out to be a hated, persecuted, minority, powerless class in this society. I quoted for you Simon Chan, who is a a theology professor in Singapore, and he says, in our context in Singapore, this is today, the act of baptism is seen even by non-Christians as the most critical moment of a person's life. Traditional Chinese do not mind their children going to church. In fact, they'll say, well, the church can teach you good things, but don't get baptized. Because the moment you get baptized, you burn your bridge with traditional religion. They understand baptism better than some of our evangelical Christians. Peter is drawing this great story back to their baptism and is saying, remember what baptism did to you. Remember what baptism taught you. That you've been placed in a story that is different from the story that everyone else is living by. You have a new identity. You have a new meaning. You have a new purpose, a new calling. And it's based upon not your innate goodness, not your devotion, not how hard you work, but it's upon Christ and what He has done in his life and death and resurrection. And so, because of that, it's not like the removal of dirt, Peter says, which is just kind of washing the surface. It's superficial. But instead, it binds you to a whole new way of life. It doesn't just wash you clean once on the outside. It's a whole new calling, a whole new story. And that's what parents when you bring your child for baptism, that's what's going on. And that's what, friends, if you've been baptized, that's what went on in your baptism, whether as a child or whether as a youth or whether as an adult. You were marked out as one who has been made clean forever by Jesus. And friends, if you're here seeking, if you're wondering, if you're questioning, that's what baptism is all about. The baptism is your entryway into the church, and then you come to the meal, the Lord's Supper, where you renew your baptismal vows, and Jesus renews his vows to you over and over each week. Now, here's how this can change your life, and this will end with this. Do you find yourself never able to sit still? I don't don't mean ADHD and being, you know, twittery or whatever, I mean, really rest. Are you ever, ever able to really sit still in your soul? Or are you forever chasing the next accomplishment that's going to make you meaningful? The next experience that's going to make life worthwhile and make all the work you do worthwhile? Are you constantly trying to live in such a way that distances yourself from your past, from the hurts that you've had, from the hurts that you've inflicted upon others? Maybe you're a Christian and you've busied yourself with managing life in a way that really gives God very little room to incarnate himself because you really don't need him all that much. You're managing life fine on your own. You've papered over maybe your discontentment by saying you really shouldn't want, you really shouldn't need so much. And so you wallow in guilt rather than pleasure. Baptism is a proclamation in each of those circumstances that God is wanting to meet what you're looking for as you agitate so wildly, as you seek to accomplish, as you seek to climb up the totem pole of success or 
the outside of experience, the outside world. Baptism is a proclamation of God that you are deeply loved and that you are cared for no matter what has been done to you, by you, no matter what you've done to yourself. What makes you special, what makes you beautiful is that God has devoted himself to you, irrespective of either your terrific accomplishments or your shameful failures. Wherever you find yourself, God is willing to devote himself to you in baptism forever. And it says that because of God's mercy, because of his love for you, that you were called, washed, made clean, named, promised, and commissioned. And that's what happens. That's what's going on in baptism. He's not laying out, Peter here, a systematic theology of baptism. He's saying in your daily life, in your daily experience, remember, live out of your baptism. You are baptized, yes, by a God who expects your loyalty and your allegiance, your trust and your love. And all through the book of Peter, he's calling for that over and over to live in this way. But the only reason he can, the only reason he does is because he sent his son who gave you his loyalty, his trust, his allegiance, his love. And so live out of that. Let's pray. Lord God, wherever we are this morning, whether we don't remember our baptism, whether we were baptized quite recently, whether we had a child baptized, or whether we're considering it, Lord, I pray that we would not see it as magic, but we would see it as powerful. That we would not see it as the the thing in and of itself that makes us clean, but that we would see it as the means by which you make us clean. Lord, I pray that we would stand in and out of our baptism, that we would live out of it. And as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, would you enrich us, would you renew us, would you make us to be the people that you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.